Well, we are here in Ephesians 6. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in verses 10 through 18 uh, today, uh, dealing with a, a passage, a really famous passage that many of us are probably familiar with. Uh, but we have spent the past seven now, I went back and looked, the past seven messages in Ephesians uh, following Paul as he has taken the, the rich theological truths of the gospel and the Christian life, and he has moved them to a place of very practical application in our lives. We spent seven weeks just talking about what it looks like for us to be living out the Christian life. Paul has addressed things like our, our involvement with the church, our relationships with each other as believers. He's talked about culture, marriage, parenting, uh, our jobs, all of these wonderful things that he has uh, kind of taken pen to paper on. And there are some of those where he's spent a, a good amount of ink addressing those different topics and kind of outlining what, what does that look like. And then there's other times where, if we're totally honest, uh, he was kind of just straight and short and sweet, you know, and we're like, Maybe a little bit more explanation would have been appreciative, Paul, but uh, nevertheless, God has given us what God has given us, and that is what is necessary for us. And so, as we address uh, these things, we recognize that we are at a place in Ephesians where Paul is starting to tie up the letter. He's putting, he's kind of, he's kind of wrapping all these things up. He, we have some practical things today, but as we've looked at it, he has been pretty straightforward in what he has done. He spent the first three chapters saying, okay, here's what is true for you in Christ. Here's what's true of who you are. Here's what's true in your life. These things are the foundational truths. Now, here's how you live in light of that. On paper, that's pretty straightforward, but in life, that's often easier said than done, right? That we're like, okay, it's, it's great that Paul has put all these things on paper before us, but you get down to the nitty-gritty of life and the nuanced circumstances of life and all that goes on, and we're like, okay, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? Or, you know, even just it's hard to actually go about doing these different things. And the reason uh, for that, as God's going to reveal to us in his word today, is that there is a battle that we are all struggling in, that we are all a part of, and this is a battle that is raging for the strongholds with your affections, strongholds for your attitudes, and strongholds for your actions in your life. And we rage war in this battle on a daily basis. This isn't just an excuse that God gives to say, okay, well, we've got something to fall back on and say, hey, yeah, it's, it's hard. There's a lot of uh, stuff going on here. It's, it's a complicated deal, so it's okay that I stumble and fall at times, but it's more a, a reality that God calls us to deal with, that we need to address. And so Paul, in our passage today, in Ephesians say, listen, this war may be going on, but it's not to say that, oh, you got beat down, okay. You say, no, since we know that the war is going on, we need to prepare for battle. We need to get engaged in this thing that's taking place. And perhaps the greatest scheme of the enemy in this battle is to convince us that there's no battle. And he's done a pretty good job of that in our culture today, because if we know from looking at history, people live differently in times of war than they do in times of peace. If you were to just take a little history class back to World War II, there's so many uh, great things uh, put out there about all the, the stuff that happened with World War II. We talk so much in, in books and movies about the camaraderie of soldiers and the acts of valor and bravery and sacrifice that men would lay down their lives for their, their comrades and lay down their, their lives for their country. 
There's so much to appreciate about understanding the tactics and all these different things uh, that took place on the front lines and how, how battles were won. And there's, there's shows and documentaries and books written about all of these wonderful things. But one of the things that doesn't get spoken of all too often is what was life like stateside? Here, our country had sent so many young men off to fight a war in another country, in another part of the world. But back here, World War II was everybody's war. Rations were part of life back here in the United States. Women took up a place in the workplace like they had never done before as men left to go fight in battle. Propaganda marked the the media saying, this is what's going on, rallying the emotions of the people saying, we can do this, we can win, this is a, a good cause that we are fighting for. There were blackouts and victory gardens as people would grow their own food so that they could send food off to support the troops. And it, it was everybody's war. Not just the guys who went to the front lines. And as we address this spiritual battle that we are going to be facing, that we are facing today, we need to remember that it's everybody's war. That for those of us who are in the church, there are certainly times and seasons when we will face more intense days of battle. But even if you find yourself in what feels like a time of peace, it is not meant to say, okay, this is not my battle anymore. Because we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are on the front lines, which means we are all called to this. We are called to this together, that this is our war. And we are part of it as God's army and in the Lord. And so, If you have your Bibles, let's look at verses uh, 10 through 18 this morning. And then uh, it is my prayer that as we look at this briefing, if you will, from the Apostle Paul, that we would gain an understanding of what this battle is really like and and what does our engagement in this battle look like as well. So starting in verse 10, Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Our Father, Lord, we come before you today and we ask that you would grant us wisdom. Father, we ask that you would grant us boldness. Father, we ask that you would grant us discernment into, of heart into this battle that we are part of, into this cosmic war that your word tells us is taking place, that we would take it seriously, that we would prepare for it, but God, that by your power and that your might, that we might stand firm in the battle. Father, we pray your blessing on the time ahead of us, that our hearts would be receptive to your word, that you would be stirring in our midst to lead us and prepare us to be the people you have called us to be. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. Well, as we talk about something like spiritual warfare, 
we have to recognize that uh, it is, there, there have been so many different responses to spiritual warfare in the world that we live in uh, today. Number one, uh, we see that sometimes this whole concept is celebrated in our culture. And what I mean by that is if you were to uh, look at media and all of the different movies and TV shows that go out, it's almost like we love the, the horror movies and the, the thriller movies that involve the supernatural and all the exorcisms and all these different things that people pay all kinds of money to go to movie theaters and enjoy that kind of entertainment. And as we take in that kind of entertainment, it leads some to say, yeah, this is all just make-believe. We kind of diminish the severity of it, the seriousness of the battle that's taking place, saying it's just something that we see in the movies. It's just something that we see on TV. It's, it's not really true. And so while some will say, oh, yeah, look, I, I love just the, the, the intense emotions and feelings that I get when I watch these kind of shows, uh, other people on the other side will say, yeah, but we all know that it's not real. And we deny its very existence to say it's something we like to pretend about. It's something we like to uh, make up. But in reality, there's no such thing as demons. There's no such thing as angels. There's no such reality as the supernatural. And so what, it's great to pretend, but have your fun and get back to reality when you're done. Some people will take the concept of spiritual warfare and almost idolize it. That it becomes everything to them. You know, what I mean by that is maybe you've been there before where you're trying to text somebody and the text message doesn't go through and you're like, ah, the devil just didn't want them to get that message today. Or you get stuck at a red light and you're like, the devil really doesn't want me to get where I'm going today. And every little facet of our lives is, it's a spiritual war. The devil's attacking me. And it becomes this, this big deal about our lives. And we almost uh, make it into something that it was never really meant to be. We, we kind of elevate it. And in overreaction to that, sometimes we'll say, well, it ain't all that, right? We, we see videos of uh, exorcisms and all kinds of things, and I'm like, well, I, our skepticism, our red flags start going up, and we're like, okay, what is spiritual warfare really? And we almost start to just diminish it. Maybe it's, so it's real, but what does it really have to do on my life Monday through Friday? What does it really look like in my family? It ain't that. Maybe it just comes and goes. It's not that big of a deal that we need to be concerned about. And frankly, I think as we look at the passage before us, as we look at God's Word as a whole, none of those responses quite meet what the Bible calls us to. The Bible deals with spiritual warfare, it deals with demons, it deals with angels, it deals with this cosmic battle as if it's a very real thing. It's something that we should prepare for in life, but not something that we should idolize. Not something that should just consume us. And so as we begin this discussion today, as we talk about what it means to fight the good fight as believers... What Paul is calling for the Ephesian church, what he is encouraging us to do, is to prepare for battle. Not something to say, it's, it's something for later on in life. He's like, no, now is the time to prepare. Notice our preparation for this battle in verse 11, that you might, might be so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil, that we might withstand in the evil day. He's like, listen, you prepare before the battle strikes so that you are ready when it does. Our preparation for the battle is key and important for when the battle actually shows up. We tend to think that this may be a problem tomorrow. I'm not feeling this battle so much today. But now's the time to get ready. Now's the time Paul is saying, put on the whole armor of God. So you will stand firm. 
So you'll be ready when the evil day approaches. It's not so much a matter of if you're going to face spiritual battle as a believer, but when will you face spiritual battle as a believer? C.S. Lewis kind of speaks to this standing firm in the evil day uh, with this quote. We may have used it here at our church before, but it's so good. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. He says, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into into temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, this is so good, Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. What a profound discussion on this. You know the strength of a wind by walking against it. You know the strength of temptation by standing against it. And what Paul is calling us to say is, when that wind comes, when that temptation comes our way, it's about standing in the face of it. Not that we would lie down, not that we would give up in the fight, but that we would be equipped, that we would be strong to embrace what comes our way, that we might stand firm, that we might honor God in the midst of it. Yet some of us, if we're totally honest with ourselves, and maybe it's because we tend to minimize this discussion, maybe it's, I don't know what it may be, but we find ourselves saying, well, I don't really feel myself in a fight. I don't really feel the battle. I don't, I don't get the sense that I'm at war on a daily basis. And that may be for a couple of reasons. Number one, it could be because you've not actually entered the war yet. If you find yourself that you are not in the heat of battle, maybe you're not in the war. Notice in verse 10, Paul says that our strength in this battle is where? In the Lord and in the strength of his might. His admonition for us in our preparation for the battle is to put on the whole armor of God, which is awfully similar if you were to go back to chapter 4 in verse 24 where Paul says, put on the new self. That is, if putting on the armor of God is, in effect, putting on that new self of who we are in Christ. So if you're finding yourself that you are not fighting these spiritual battles, then perhaps you've not put on that new self. Perhaps you are not standing in the Lord. We talk so much at times about freedom in Christ and being freed from, from sin and, and being freed to, to live in a way that would honor God. And we, that's so true for us, but it, we all, it almost leads us to a place where we don't talk about the reality of explaining that once you become a Christian, once you put on the uniform, you put on the new self, you put on the armor of God, that's when you actually enter the war. We think that the war is done when we come to saving faith. And Paul is saying, God's saying, that's only when it's getting started. Because before that moment, all you knew is what C.S. Lewis said, you're just laying down. You're just laying down. You're just laying down. You're not fighting that, impu- that evil impulse inside of you. Now, because we've been made new, 
We recognize the evil within. We recognize our own sinful tendencies, and we say, no, that does not honor God. That's not who God has called me to be. And so we start to fight back against those things. We start to realize, man, this is, this is a battle that we're raging in. One pastor uh, said, that he's like, I can always tell when new believers are starting to grow in maturity because they start fighting battles. A new believer comes to faith and they start dealing with things like, ah, they're, they're growing. Because they're recognizing what's within them and they're fighting back. So don't be fooled. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a battle that you are part of, and it is a battle between the flesh and a battle against the Spirit. Who will you submit to? Who will you follow? That's a part of every day of your life. This battle rages on. So number one, you might not be in the war. Number two, you might just not put up much of a fight. You don't feel the battle because you tend to be like C.S. Lewis said, you're just giving in. When temptation comes your way, you tend to lay down and give in to the temptation. You don't know the, the strength of that temptation an hour later because you give in in the first minute. It's a challenge for us to, to consider and, and evaluate where we're at because maybe we have a lot of bark, but when it comes down to reality, we don't have a whole lot of bite. We might speak boldly about uh, being righteous and following God, but when the moment of evil comes... Maybe we're standing in our own strength. Maybe you're fighting the battle by yourself, all alone. In this passage, Paul is uh, using the, the, the illustration of a Roman soldier. And as Paul's in, in prison at this point, there's a good chance that he's writing this. He's actually looking up and walk, looking at a guy right in front. He's like, huh, that might be a good illustration for this. We should put on the whole armor of God. Okay, so he's got a helmet, and he starts going down the list. And he's like, this, this is, we equip ourselves. Because as a soldier is equipped to go into battle, so should we as Christians. But everybody knew that the Roman soldier, while they had strength in their equipment, strength in their armor, they were strongest when they were with their company. They were strongest when they were shield by shield, sword and sword, arm and arm, brothers in war. Not isolated and alone, but together. Isn't that what Paul's been kind of calling us to in this book? We are one in Christ. Uh, chapters 3 and 4 talks to the, our unity in the body and our using our different strengths and, uh, that we might benefit and serve one another. You know, it kind of reminds me of a, a forest canopy. It was always struck when we uh, would go up and go backpacking. You're, you're hiking through the forest and you have all these huge trees that are towering up into the sky around you. And uh, beneath all of those trees, you have uh, all the kinds of little baby trees growing up, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, which is, is so fascinating because they're, they're, they're battling for their place to take their stand in the forest. But apart from the, the protection of those uh, bigger, more mature trees, those, those young trees, they just they wouldn't really stand a chance. The storms and the winds would, would just knock them down. The, the full bearing of the sun would dry them out. They, they would just wither and die. But with the protection of some of those uh, more mature trees in the forest around them, they have an opportunity uh, to establish themselves and to grow up that one day they might be the towering tree into the sky that would help bring protection to someone else. It's a good picture of the Christian life that, that maybe you're in this battle and you're early on. You're young in your faith and, and you have a propensity to say, I can do this on my own. And, and the word of God calls to say, no, we do this together. We put our shields side by side. We fight as brothers and sisters in this war. We bear one another's burdens. We don't do this thing alone. 
And oftentimes when we find ourselves stepping out by ourselves, it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. But to link arms with our brothers and fight the battle that's before us. For all of us who want to be effective, for those of you who are like, okay, if this battle's real, I want to be effective in this battle. I want to find victory in this battle. It's so important that we are surrounding ourselves with brothers and sisters. It's so important that you are coming prepared for the day of battle. So uh, Paul, in his briefing, gives us some ideas of what does that preparation actually look like. Here's the battle number one. We need to identify the real enemy. If we are going to prepare for this battle, we need to identify the real enemy. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic uh, powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's description here of our enemy helps us understand a bit of who the enemy is and what our enemy is like. Number one, we learned right off the bat that our enemy in this battle is not physical. It's not the people around us. We have a spiritual enemy in this fight. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What makes this so hard for us is that we deal with flesh and blood. There's always a real person standing across from you. As Paul is writing this to the Ephesians, uh, they're thinking in their heads, it was real people who rioted against the church. It was real people who tried to drive the gospel out of town. It's real people who are committing all kinds of acts of gross immorality and worship of the temple of Artemis. It's real people who are condemning Christians to death at times for their faith in Jesus Christ. What do you mean we don't battle against flesh and blood? I'm seeing a whole lot of flesh and blood in my life. And Paul's saying, listen, you need to recognize that there is another layer beyond what our eyes can see. I love that in that last song we say, open up our eyes to the things unseen. God's word saying there is more at play here than simply what meets the eye. So yes, we are going to deal with real people. There's always going to be another person looking across the table at you that you're going to deal with. Maybe it's a a personal argument. Maybe it's dealing with systems and structures in the world. There's always real people engaged with these things. But as believers, we need to stop and recognize, and we have to keep this in mind, that they are not our enemy. We may engage with them, but we are not fighting them. We are fighting the spiritual forces that are at play behind them, that are influencing them. And we have to keep this in mind because as we deal with life today, we have a tendency, especially as Christians, to look and say, man, those people committing abortions are our enemy. And we're going to fight them. Democrats are our enemy. Republicans are our enemy. Communists are our enemy. And we tend to say, hey, this is where we're going to devote our attention. And Paul's saying, that's not the enemy. Do not fool yourself into fighting the wrong people. We need to know the real enemy. It reminds me in some ways of the story of Elisha and his servant. You remember this from, uh, from back in 2 Kings chapter 6. The servant uh, looks out of the town and, and realizes, oh my goodness, we are surrounded by a whole army of people. And he brings news to Elisha thinking, well, okay, well, how are you going to respond if you find out you're surrounded by an enemy who wants to kill you? And Elisha's like, we don't need to be scared because those who are for us are much greater. You imagine, what? It's you and me, buddy. What are you talking about? 
We're surrounded, don't you? Like, are you living in reality right now? And Elisha prays, Lord, but you open his eyes. And the Lord answers the prayer, and the servant looks out to see the hills covered with horses and chariots of fire. There's more than meets the eye. More than meets the eye in this battle. And, and we need to recognize that there are spiritual things that play behind the systems, behind the structures, behind the people that we deal with on a daily basis. There is simply more than what's going on. And this is so important for us to grasp because if we identify the wrong enemy in this battle, it's going to cause us to fight the wrong fight. It's going to cause us to fight the wrong fight. We'll use the wrong tactics. We'll use the wrong tools. We're going to find ourselves working awfully hard and getting nowhere because we're going to start to deal with things that are merely symptoms of a deeper issue. It's like you're going out, i got a flower bed in my house right now that's got weeds galore in it, and it'd be like just going and chopping the weed off at the top and saying, it looks great. And I bust my tail to do it, and I shed some sweat and maybe cut myself a couple times, and I'm like, I worked hard to make this flower bed look good, and in a week, it's going to look terrible again. Because you don't deal with the root. If we identify the wrong enemy in the battle, we're going to find ourselves doing an awful lot of that. We're going to deal with the symptoms, and we may make this one area look a little bit prettier, and we're going to be shocked. Why did it grow back up again? Because we haven't dealt with the real problem. We haven't drilled down. We haven't dug into the, the issue enough to get to the issue of sin, to know who we're really dealing with, to know what's actually happening. We need to fight the right fight. But perhaps one of the most Convicting components of it is if we make people our enemy, we are less likely to have sympathy for them. We are less likely to associate with them to a degree or which we may have even an opportunity to share the hope that we have in Christ. Where we wouldn't love them, we wouldn't care for them the way that we ought to, the way that we're called to. And we may never want to admit this with our mouths, but in the heart of our hearts, maybe it's sometimes we look and we're like, they, they clearly don't want anything to do with Jesus. I'm not even going to waste my time. If we really want to get honest, maybe sometimes we think, what, what would God do with them? I mean, look what they're doing in life. We would never want to admit it. But when people become the enemy... We become less concerned about the gospel and more concerned just about being good. And Christianity becomes nothing more than moralism rather than advancing the kingdom of God. Rather than loving people and winning the souls of the lost. So when we identify the right enemy, it causes us to still have love and concern for the people who are the face of the evil that we deal with. And who better do we have to look to than our Lord and Savior as an example of this? Jesus himself was despised. He was rejected by the very ones he came to save. The very ones he came, he loved and he came to be with. He was arrested by real people. Real people beat him. Real people spit on him and mocked him. Real people were involved in his in his. Uh, crucifixion. Real people uh, drove the nails into his hands and his feet, yet as Jesus hung on the cross, he did not pray to the Father for their destruction, did he? As our Savior, as our Lord, they are nailed to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
They were not his enemy. They are not ours. So might we learn from our Savior's example that we are engaged in a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy. And just because this is an enemy that we may not see with our eyes, just because this is an enemy that we don't use human tactics, does not mean that this enemy does not come to the battle prepared. Does not mean that this enemy does not come uh, or, or that the enemy comes disjointed or disorganized, but we see in our passage today that our enemy comes to the battle very structured. Later in verse 12, we see that there are rulers, there's authorities, there's cosmic powers over the present darkness, there's spiritual forces at play here. This reminds us that uh, the enemy that we serve, if we think of the devil, we often say, oh, the devil's attacking me right now. And it's like, reality is, there's only one devil and he can only be in one place at one time. So chances are the devil's not after you, but his forces may be. That there are powers and structures. Think more regimes and ranks. If you're ever familiar with the uh, screw tape letters, it's kind of a good illustration of this. Obviously, it's not scripture, but it kind of gives a good picture of what it may be like. There are forces at play. We do not serve a singular enemy, and this shows us that these, uh, these forces, they have their marching orders in this battle, and their marching orders are quite strategic. We are told that uh, in verse 11 that our enemy has schemes. He doesn't just show up to this fight willy-nilly and say, well, I'll just throw this at the wall and see if it gets him. There are schemes at play here that our enemy is coming with strategy against you and against the church to thwart us and take us off our mission. Wayne Grudem speaks of these tactics saying that the tactics of Satan and his demons are to use lies, deception, murder, and every other kind of destructive activity to attempt to cause people to turn away from God and destroy themselves. Demons, he says, will try every tactic to blind people to the gospel and to keep them in bondage to things that hinder them from coming to God. They will also use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or any other means possible to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness. Let us not think that our enemy has no concern and is not showing up prepared. Our enemy is coming prepared. He has plans in place. He has thought through his schemes. He has strategies that says, this is how we're going to take him down. This is how we're going to deceive. This is how we are going to lure. This is how we are going to tempt. There is a lot of intentionality and a lot of thought that has gone into the schemes of our enemy. So how much more should we come to the battle prepared? If our enemy's coming prepared, maybe we should put on our, our armor of God and say, let's get in the fight. Let's come ready to go. All of this is to say that what Paul is dealing with here, he's saying, listen, guys, we have a serious foe in this battle. A foe that we can't just see with our eyes, so we take on faith, we recognize that what God has said is true, and we trust that. We have a foe that's strategic, we have a foe that has great structure to his ranks, and here we often deal with this idea of spiritual warfare like, meh. We don't think much of it. And Paul's saying, put on the armor of God. It's time to fight. Because I know one enemy that is not in favor of these wonderful spiritual truths that are true of us in Jesus Christ. I know one enemy who is going to go at every length to prevent you from walking out a life that honors God 
because of who you are in Christ? What will He do to thwart you? And we struggle with this at times because we know the, we know the end. We know Revelation. We know the ultimate doom for the devil. We know uh, Christ's ultimate final triumph. And so we tend to come at this saying, well, the enemy is defeated. But it's the already but not yet. He's defeated, but the Scriptures, New Testament, still speak of Satan as the ruler of this world. Still speak of Satan as the prince of the power of the air right here in Ephesians. The God of this world in 2 Corinthians. That's not language that says that he is powerless. He may have no dominion and no authority over us as believers, but he is still certainly at work. So we ought to come prepared and be ready. Because even though our, our, our enemy is serious, Paul's encouragement in this whole passage is not that at the end of it we're going to be like, oh my goodness, what hope do we have? There's no reason to be scared of this enemy because God has equipped us with everything that we need to combat to engage in the fight. Spiritual spiritual battles are inevitable, but they will not be invincible for those of us who stand in Christ. Let's not forget where Paul started this whole letter out in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has given you every tool, every piece of equipment to be effective in the fight. But you'll notice the implication of Paul's charge to put on the armor of God means that perhaps we have that armor available to us, but we're leaving it in the, in the closet and we're not putting it on. He's saying, no, go get it. You're going to need it. Put the armor on to engage in the battle that you're dealing with. It's been made available to you, so let's not waste it. Let's not neglect it, but let's use it. So go put the armor on. So number one, we need to identify the right enemy. Number two, our preparation for this battle means implementing the right equipment. One pastor put it this way, that we must learn the processes of overcoming the systems of the devil, not by flesh and blood, not by joining committees, not by political action, not by taking up clubs or assault weapons and attacking a human enemy. No, Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not flesh and blood weapons, not physical weapons, not political weapons. Rather, our weapons are mighty through God unto the pulling down of strongholds and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That is the path to victory. And boy, have we seemed to mess it up at times. We try to use... People weapons, physical weapons, political weapons, to say here's the battle that we're going to wage and here's how we're going to fight it. And we wonder why we struggle with that so much. Why is culture winning the war right now? Maybe because we've neglected to use the right equipment. Maybe because the church has more or less laid down arms and says, oh, if you want to fight with these things, we'll, we'll fight your fight. And we've failed to recognize the real enemy, the real issue, and the right equipment. I love how uh, that pastor put it at the end of that quote, that our weapons are mighty through God unto the pulling down of strongholds. So good. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might.
The whole armor of God, brothers and sisters, is necessary for us to stand firm. And I believe that when Paul speaks of the armor, it tells us something of the fight that we're going to face. Could it be that when Paul lists all these components of armor that God has given us the appropriate tools for the job? We talked in our small group this week about having a different equipment that we use as part of our jobs and, and what could you not do in your job if you didn't have the right equipment? It would be silly. I was talking about this with a youth group uh, one year at fall camp and I had a bunch of guys come up that were like, they, they know their stuff with carpentry and I was like, let's go. All right, let's, let's bring on the challenge. And I gave one of them a level and I said, I need you to cut this piece of wood in half. But you got to use the level. And I gave one of them a hammer. I said, you need to screw this screw into this uh, two by four, but you can, you can only use the hammer. You got to screw it, you can't hammer it. And they're sitting there on the stage just trying to do this stuff and it's just not effective because they're using the wrong tool for the wrong job. But God's given us all the tools necessary for the right job. So maybe the tools that God's given us tells us something of the job and the battle that we are to face. Now we're probably not so much meant to say, okay, what's the belt of truth? Why, why is truth the belt? Why is righteousness the, the breastplate? You know, maybe not so much to get into all of those details. But certainly as we look at these components, do they not tell, something, uh, tell us something of the fight? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks to us about not being outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs. In essence, what, what God is telling us is saying, listen, you may face an enemy that has schemes and strategies to fight against you, but I'm giving you his playbook. So fight against it. And I'm going to give you all the tools that you need to do that. So don't be fooled. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. But be prepared. So we might fight. So could it be that God has told us that the enemy's goal is to deceive us? with witty and cutting deception, masquerading even as an angel of light. So what piece of armor has God provided for us? Truth, that we might put it on and be sharp. Could it be that uh, God has told us in his word that our enemy is the accuser of the brethren who brings all manner of accusations against his church? That in the darkness of night as you lay in your bed, you wrestle with, who am I? And those thoughts start creeping in, but I'm, I, but I struggle with my anger, man. I lose my cool way too easy. God wouldn't use me. What does God want with me in the ministry of the church? Doesn't he know that you start going the Moses route? He's like, I can't speak, I can't. And God's saying, listen, hold on. And the, the enemy comes as your accuser. That you're just not good enough to be used by God. So what, what armor does God provide? Righteousness. That we are clothed with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That he is our righteousness. Yes, though in my flesh I may fail, but in Christ I am redeemed. In Christ I am a new creation. I have the righteousness of God. Maybe we should be steady in the fight, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Maybe when the circumstances and concerns and trials and tribulations of life come our way, they may lead us into a frenzy of confusion and chaos. But God has equipped us with the shield of faith that we might defend against the flaming darts of our enemy. 
that we might stand firm and live by faith, not by sight. And we might be safe. Perhaps we'll face doubts along the way, but we can defend against them by putting on the helmet of salvation and be sure of who we are in Christ. And thanks be to God that he's given us a weapon in this fight that we're not all just defensive to sit there and take the beatings, but he's given us a sword that we might fight back in every circumstance, yielding his word as the sword of the Spirit, that we would know it, that we would be trained in his word. That's the, the beautiful thing about the swords is you don't just pick up a sword and you're an expert. There's training that goes into it. I don't know if any of you have seen the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. You remember the scene where the hobbits are given their little swords and they just start like flailing them around like crazy. And uh, Boromir is sitting there and he's like, all right, no, we've got to teach these little kids what to do because they're going to be nothing but trouble to themselves if they don't have a little training. And for some of us early in our Christian life, we pick up the sword and we are irresponsible with it and we do not know what we're doing. But with the proper training, it becomes an effective and powerful tool in the battle that we have to fight back against our enemy. God has not left us defenseless, that we might be strong in the fight. And finally, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, recognizing that if we were to do this in our own strength, we would be weary. But by prayer, we might be sustained in the fight. We might be faithful, not in our own strength, but in the strength of God. The armor of God, brothers and sisters, is effective in all ways for the battle that we will face. It is important that each of us put on the whole armor of God, not just for ourselves. But what about the person sitting next to you, behind you? Won't you put your armor on for their sake? As brothers in the fight, sisters in the fight, to defend them, to fight arm in arm as God's people? Because when we put on the whole armor of God, we put on Christ. We live in the new identity that we have in Christ. We live with the new identity that we have in Christ as those who have been adopted as children of God. We live as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, forgiven of all of our trespasses and all of our sins, as those who have been given wisdom and discernment to the will of God in Christ, those who have been sealed in the Spirit for an inheritance that we yet await to take hold of, that we might be to the praise of His glory and grace. So maybe today, in view of this passage, as Paul begins to wrap this letter up, is a time for you to take an inventory of your defenses. Where are you strong in your defenses? Where are you weak or maybe defenseless? Is there any aspects or components of the armor of God that you tend to have a very difficult time putting on. Leaving you without strength or without protection in the fight. I encourage you to go for the Lord this week and say, Lord, that you have given me the whole armor of God. Help me to equip all of it that I might be effective, that I might find victory in the fight in your strength. So I encourage you now, to take up the whole armor that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, whether that's today, whether it's tomorrow or a month down the road, and having done all, stand firm so that when the day is done, 
when we breathe our last and we stand before our Creator one day, that we might say with Paul uh, that we have fought the good fight, that we have finished the race, that we've kept the faith. Let's prepare for the battle that's before us and be faithful to the call that God has placed in our lives.